Welcome back to the Leatherbound Podcast. As always, I am Ben, and the other guy who's not doing this intro thing I'm a bopper is Hunter. We are a podcast where a couple of cousins try to become better people by reading big books. Now, Ben! <laughs> ah, I finally got the tape off my mouth. It's an audio seminary Dang on moral it. improvement via literary masterpiece from the greatest authors contemporary and historical. Tape ripping <sighs> sound, putting tape on Hunter's mouth sound. Ah. Maybe. Hunter, I'm not very good at sound effects. I tried. Yeah, it's okay. Um, All right. I also that was... did say contemporary, correct? But, you know, this is a live show. So, how did you pronounce that's it? That's just going to be there. Contemporary, I'm pretty sure. Like, <laughs> just no T. So, I love anyway. that. Yeah, we are a very contemporary podcast. Um, welcome oh, no. if you are listening to the show, which is the only way you could be hearing this. Uh, today, we have a very depressing show for you. Is I think that's like really the only way to intro this. Usually the show has quite a jovial tune and I have a bad feeling that today is not going to have that because today we are talking about a book called Ordinary Men by a gentleman by the name of Christopher R. Browning. Ordinary Men is a book about the horrors of the Holocaust. Now, if you are just tuning in for the first time, this is season one of the Leatherbound podcast, and the theme of season one is it is better to be righteous than it is to be right. And we've been exploring that idea by a few books. I believe this is our sixth episode now, and that idea is going to come out extremely strongly inside this book. And the biggest overview, I'll do my high-level Uh, summary of the book, which will take no more than 30 seconds. It follows the police battalion 101, the Polish Nazi battalion of normal people. And it follows the atrocities that they committed. They started out as ordinary men, as the title suggests, and then progressively begin to commit atrocities. And this is probably the time where I need to warn any listener, if there's young kids listening, or simply if you're extremely sensitive, this isn't the episode for you. This is going to go into some absolutely abhorrent behavior um, and things that are probably going to stick with you as they've stuck with me. Um, But before I talk about that more, I want to throw it over to Hunter um, and do one of my classic ask my smart cousin a question moments and Hunter I think that a lot of people are going to ask a fair question which is why on earth are you guys reading a book about the evils that Nazis perpetuated against the Jews right and it's an excellent question you know um there's that verse in the bible that says you know to think on good things um Funny thing about that verse is, as far as I can remember, it doesn't say anything. It it just says it says an affirmative, uh, not necessarily to not necessarily a negative, right? It's important to keep in mind. Um, but that doesn't really answer your question. Um, the real reason, and I think Ben, when we are putting together our so-called seminary program that we've been doing, and now are kind of sharing with people through these books that we've read, um is we kind of developed a couple of categories. Uh, Those were books on the Bible, literature on the Bible, books against the Bible. All three of those are pretty relatively simple. They make a lot of sense. 
we also added in philosophy. Like we wanted to read Socrates and things like that and kind of sprinkle that on top of what we were doing. We haven't talked to many of those except for possibly Nietzsche, but you get the point. Um, and then we we added in a fifth category here too, which is books on evil. And someone might ask, why would you want to read books about evil? And the real, the real answer to that is we wanted to understand um, the depraved human condition better to realize so much more what we have been saved from. Right. And I think, and I think in addition to that, you call that one, two is how do normal everyday people commit atrocities? What leads them into dark paths? How can we make sure one that doesn't happen to us, even in small ways and make sure that in big ways, when it matters, we stand up and say something about it. Um, so reading about the Holocaust is is not reading about the Holocaust in this way, especially a book like Ordinary Men, is not necessarily an exercise in glorifying what's happened. It's not uh, celebrating the gore. It's not celebrating the dead bodies. It's nothing like that. It's really an exercise of how did that n- Nazi or in this case policeman get in this position and what are the areas in my life that I've seen similar mistakes that thank God didn't have these consequences? Mm. In other words, putting yourself in their shoes to some extent and understanding that it was a human being that was there, not a monster, right? Um, what's the difference to some extent, right? And so I think that that's, that's the goal here. And it is a dark goal, but I think the thing that's good is, um, and I don't think this is for everyone, just like I don't think necessarily... Um, uh, reading books against the Bible is for everyone. It requires a certain level of maturity, right? It requires a certain level of seeing yourself, uh, seeing the world properly and having a strong faith. Because uh, like you said, Ben, um, there are plenty of things in here that can shake you. Uh, there's plenty of things here that can terrify you. Um, but they did happen. They were real. And uh, the consequences of them were terrifying. Um the last point, and this is how it ties into the season, and I'm droning on a bit, and I apologize, but it's a podcast. You came here to listen to me for an hour, so joke's <laughs> on you, um, is the fact that uh, it's the fact that if this is what's in man's heart, so to speak, you have to have a moral response to it, right? And that is kind of our whole theme is it's better to uh, be right uh, righteous rather than right intelligently, so to speak. And one of the things that you'll see is, yes, I think everyone can agree this is wrong, but no one can necessarily provide you the framework in which to package that in, so to speak. Um, and I, th- I hope in the works that we've done um, on the other, uh, on the more religious side of the aisle with Chesterton um, and with um Dostoevsky have given people a really good opportunity to see that, you know, you need something beyond your rationality, so to speak, to provide a proper defense of all, all sin in your life. Um, so hopefully we can do a good job of that today. Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything you just said. And also, I think it's worth noting that we have, especially as people from America, we have grown up in one of the most abnormal periods of history Mm -hmm. ever it is such a bizarre the fact that this morning i woke up rotated my hand about 180 degrees and instantly had piping hot water 
I woke up warm because I had enough blankets to keep myself that way. I got in a car where I pushed a button and it instantly started up and the seat was nice and warm for me. There are so many luxuries that we have. And I think those luxuries that we have been blessed with have maybe polluted, might not quite be the right word, but polluted how we see the individual. And I think you can see that philosophy played out in things like Disney. Things, mm. if I ask most of my friends, are people good or bad, they're going to say good. If you say deep down, are people are people born good or are they born bad? I firmly believe in, in my conversations with people that most are going to say that we're born good. And we're going to say that because we are born into one of the most peaceful times in the history of the planet. And it's so important to realize the Holocaust wasn't that long ago. It was less than a hundred years. There are people alive today who were alive when the Holocaust was going on. This isn't ancient history. These aren't things that old tribal people did. As this book points out, this is the work of ordinary men, people mm. just like you, people just like me. In the beginning of the book, it details the occupations of of the people, and it's carpenters, it's clothes makers, it's farmers. Barbers. Yeah. Yeah, it's barbers. And we'd love to pretend that evil exists on this existential field that's outside of us and that everyone's great deep down inside, and I think books like that remind us that that isn't true and that's very important to talk about for reasons that we're gonna get into a little bit more and the the last thing i'd like to say man is somewhere people people debate on on all these numbers but somewhere between 6 and 11 million jews died in the holocaust somewhere mm. between 15 and 55 million people died under mao and somewhere between 9 and 15 died under Stalin. And the only reason those numbers have such massive disparities is because at some level it's hard to figure out who to pin people's deaths on. There there has been a staggering amount of of death that has also come with the technological revolution. And it's important to keep that in mind as as we look at this book of how could that happen? What sort of animal could perpetuate that sort of evil. And I think our conclusion, Hunter, and the author's conclusion is people just like you and people just yeah. like me. So, right. right. Yeah. And perhaps that's a, um, perhaps I think, I think that's really well summed up then. And I think, and honestly, I want to pass it back to you because I want you to tell, uh, the people, the, the short version of what this book is. Uh, you know, I, I, I will say it this way. I think we've done a good job of packaging, um, why it's important to read this book and why, uh, why, even though all the sadness associated with it is devastating, but still can be beneficial to you. Um, and I think y y you've got your clear understanding. If you need to go, go, you can go to the yep. next episode. That's fine. Um, in short, know that bad things happen, know that you can do bad things, and know that uh, you need to be on your defensive and never give mm -hmm. in to them no matter what. That's the show today. We're going to go into more detail about that and provide that backbone, if you will, to that argument. Um, 
But Ben, could you just tell the people like at a very high level what Ordinary Men is about and where what, what's going on in this book? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll add on briefly to what I talked about a little bit Please. already is this. So this book follows the Reserve Police Battalion 101. Like I said, a Polish um, police battalion um, who were Nazis. And the book follows their, I will say, evolution into mm-hmm. mass slaughter which is a horrific thing. Um, But what the book does is instead of giving you a bunch of wide angle views on what happened in the war, it stays with this one police battalion and it goes through what they saw. And there are some crucial moments. And and I know, Hunter, you have some quotes. I don't know what the quotes you have are, but I bet you're (laughs) going to talk a little bit about this. But it, it starts with the commander coming to the troops and saying, Hey guys, yeah, there's something we got to do today and I don't yeah. get it. And he's freaking out and he's shaking and he's crying and yeah. he goes, and anyone who doesn't want to do this, you can, you don't have to. And not yeah. a single person takes him up on the offer. Well, Oh, we'll sorry. come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come and back then, to that. But, but yes, you're right. You, it, you set up that situation very well, except a few people do. So. Yes, sorry. I'm thinking of the end in the very beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it it follows these these men as they journey around, as they're sent from location to location, slaughtering Jewish people. And it goes into horrific detail. It goes into exactly how they slaughtered, exactly who they slaughtered, exactly the methodology, exactly the organizational structures that were put in place, exactly the rations of vodka that they were given to numb them it is oh it is painful you know hunter i usually have to go back and and read a book pretty heavily um because we read these books a couple years back and now we're redoing them for the podcast Mm -hmm. and i found as i looked through ordinary men i really didn't need to reread anything because it was (laughs) burned into my mind man yeah, it, yeah. Th- there was nothing that needed a refresher. It wasn't difficult to conjure up the memory of what I read. I don't I don't know if trauma can be good, but I would say reading this came close to trauma. Just based yes. on you're not reading a, a fiction. This happened to real people and it's and it's awful. This book almost reads like a ghost story, you yeah. know. Like it's it's that it's that surreal when you think about it and like it haunts you like it, it literally haunts you and it like it doesn't want to let you go. Um, I think also if you take it with the seriousness that the book, not only because of the horrific accidents, but the argument of the book is it's you. Right. Is sort of what this book is. I think if you take it with that seriousness and you hear it, it really resonates in that yeah. way. Um, the one thing I want to add is that you might be wondering, how do we have such an accurate take of what happened um, to this police battalion? So I, I can't remember the exact trials. It could have been the Nuremberg. Uh, that would make sense, but I, I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, and there's a lot of details in this book of like cities and things that they went to. I, I don't remember all of those details. Well, I don't think it's the most pertinent thing in the book. We may get some of those details wrong. You're more than welcome to read it and keep up with them as you read. I think that's actually really important. And I think it's good that it's stored here. My memory's not that sharp on it today. And I don't think there's any reason to uh, it doesn't bring any benefit to our conversation that we're going to have. Um, but that being said, Browning um, basically has created this entire book 
from the testimony of the men that participated in it. And so not only do we have, we have just a plethora of firsthand accounts of what these men did themselves. It's not clear why they, they admitted to it. Maybe because they needed to get it off their conscience. Maybe because they thought they would be um, treated kindly. Uh, who knows what it was, but I mean, it's, it's remarkable how much we have and it's remarkable um, how much it builds off each other. And we have enough to write, you know, close to a 300 page book on yeah. it all. Um, so anyway, so as, as always, we're not going to do a book review, but because we don't have enough time, like I'm sure a podcast could be done exclusively on ordinary men, just like most of the books we've covered. But in terms of this episode, as always, we've pulled out three kind of main points that we think we need to talk about. Um, and and the first one is we simply want to underscore the horror of the Holocaust. So, Hunter, why don't you kick us off? Um, I, I think you have some quotes on right. that point. Right. I think this is, you know, uh, you know, this is this is why I think this matters. Um, it's one thing to know that a lot of people died. And that's fine. Um, it's it's quite another, and this is something the industrial age will tell tell you is true. Is well, how do you kill six million people, right? And that that becomes actually a question of logistics, right? And it becomes a question of math, and it becomes a question of will and propaganda and several other things. And so it's like, yeah. It's not it's not contained in the phrase six million people died, what actually happened. Right? It's not actually it's also measured. once numbers get to a certain level, our right. our feeble, tiny little human brains check out. Because like to be honest with you, I think with most people, if you tell them six million people died and twelve million people died, that doesn't even register as a significant difference because your brain just kind of goes massive amount that I can't comprehend. Right. And so, yeah. We lose a bit of that horror, yeah. is all I'm saying. And you're right. It is a logistical nightmare. And the fact that people had to think through that, they had to ration ammunition to be able to murder more people, is just mm -hmm. unthinkable. Yeah. And so to, to that extent, we're going to read some quotes. Um, before I get into that, I want to say there's basically three, you can call it... Uh, they referred to these the, this way to them in the book, so I'm going to refer to them as well. Jewish actions that they take. Um, the first is rounding up Jews in a ghetto or whatever it is and putting them on a train and sending them off to a gas chamber. Okay, so that's one way the Jews could die, right? Or a work camp or whatever it was. The second uh, action that you could see is the men are sent to a work camp, right? Uh, the old in a village or something are shot um, in their homes, more than likely, and the women and children are taken to the woods, uh, told to kneel down in the grass, essentially, or lie down and shot in the back of the head. The last and final of these actions, which I found to be the most disgusting, is the men themselves would be corralled to dig a pit, uh, basically a massive grave, and then people would be taken, um, they would be stripped, they would then go into the mass grave. They would lie down in the mass grave at gunpoint, obviously they would be shot. And then the next eight people would come and then the next eight people would come and they would do that until they had filled the mass grave. Right. Um, it's horrifying stuff. Um, so 
we'll begin here um, with one of these final, uh, how to say it, uh, the final of the actions I just discussed. Um, the 1700 Jews of Lomazi, and I am going to mess up names here, so I, forgive me, were then forced to sit and wait. A group of 60 to 70 young men was selected out, given shovels and spades, loaded onto trucks, and driven to the woods. Several of the young Jews jumped from the moving trucks and made good their escape. Another attacked a German corporal, the battalion boxing champion, who promptly knocked his desperate assailant senseless. In the woods, the Jews were sent to work, digging a mass grave. So, there it is, you know. Um, not only are you going to die, but you're also going to build the grave that your children are then going to be buried in. Um, it's a form of both uh, murderous psychological torture all kind of tied up in a nice and neat bow so to speak um so and if your stomach is turning at the moment ours is too and please please bear with us um i we're going to get into why this is important to talk about and what the lessons are um that we're going to extract out of this in, in just a little bit but but it really is important to to start out like this and and talk about just how bad was it because when we're told bad things happen it, it can kind of have the same effect that the big numbers that i mentioned earlier you know six million twelve million oh it's big numbers uh something bad happened okay there's a reason that for some reason when you tell someone that six million people died and then when you intimately tell them a story of one person for some reason, the intimate story of one person affects them more than the mass amount of people. And it's just crucial to zoom in on this to actually get an understanding of what happened. Uh, Hunter, something I'm curious, I don't know if you're setting up to read another quote, but as we talk about the horror of the of the Holocaust, I'm, I have to wonder, where the heck did this evil come from? How did this happen? How did how did humanity I know I know this is the world's biggest question what's the origin of evil but kind of what's the origin of this evil why yeah, I, why would the Jews yeah. do something or why would the Nazis perpetuate something like this upon the Jews Right um I mean yeah I think your first question there would be a more uh uh metaphorical answer uh just cuz I I don't know how else to handle it um but but it does seem to me um, you know, I'm not the biggest studier of all of Hitler's writings or anything like that. But what, what I will say is, um, it, it's definitely racism, right? It's definitely fear of the unknown, right? It's this belief that these people have invisible strings that they're pulling. And there's a lot of that, um, uh, you know, perfect Aryan race you know, nonsense going around in Germany and the Jews were bad for that. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, the medieval history of like how Jews are treated and the racism towards Jews is, you know, it's awful. Um, even, uh, Martin Luther, if you know him, uh, you know, if you're a good Protestant and, you know, can thank him for your religion was quite, quite vicious, uh, and racist to the Jews. Um, you know, so even, who you might consider excellent people uh, or important people uh, in your faith, so to speak, are, you know, this is, this has been going on for a long time and poisoning people. Um, and so, you know, there's, 
when you're trying to build a bunch of walls and dominate the world for the the Fourth Reich, um, you know, all that blood and soil talk, so to speak, um, you can see how a how a class that's always been lied about, hated, and all those things, all that anger and fear can kind of like have its own voice. Mm. Um, especially with the rise of a leader as popular as Hitler, that's able to like speak that to everyone. Um, so it's, that might be the best way to describe what's going on here without, um, necessarily like nailing it down, which I understand may not be uh, exactly your question, but yeah. Do you think there's anything else we need to hit on in terms of the horror of the Holocaust before we move on? Yeah, I think I think this will kind of drive people home. So once you've had that grave dug, right, um, you have to understand this is one of the actual mechanics of killing this many people, right, is, you know, we're, we're not going to play this game very long. Um, but if you have a bullet, you have to shoot somebody where it kills them, right? And that's not easy to do efficiently. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but you've got all these people stressed out of their minds, doing something that they necessarily don't want to do at first, are really struggling with the moral consequences of what they're doing, and also are just guys to some extent. You know, like they just, they're not, they're not trained military uh, personnel, they're policemen, right? Uh, you have to understand and, that and about Hunter, this let me division. jump in there for just a sec. Not only sure. are they just policemen and just shoemakers, right? These aren't people who grew up in the Hitler youth. These aren't people who were indoctrinated. Right. A lot of them probably didn't hear of Hitler until they were 30 or 40. These right. aren't children who have been completely indoctrinated. These are ordinary people. These are absolutely just normal people. And we, I think it feels really comfortable to pretend that they are the boogeyman under the bed and that they are the embodiment of bad because that separates them from us. And the the worst part about this book is it goes, no, 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 no. You're just like them. Oh, it's right. awful. I think, I think there's, we're not going to read these quotes today, but it's two really important points. This police battalion comes out of Hamburg. It's one of the last Nazi-ified uh, territories. Um, so these people weren't even that sympathetic to the Nazi regime. In addition to that, a good bit of them were communist, so they were directly opposed to Nazi ideals, some of them, but just kind of living beneath the radar. Um, in addition to that, none of them were really that violent. None of their profiles ever had that personality is what Browning kind of shows us. So these are the kind of people that when you heard them come on the five o'clock news and you were like, oh, I never thought he would do that. That's the exact kind of reaction yeah. their mothers would have. Um, so, so you have to understand that. And you also have to understand that as you get progressively drunk, as you're trying to deal with killing all these people, right? You miss. Um, and so, as more and more bodies are being brought into the mass grave, this happens. The whole business was the most gruesome I had ever seen in my life because I was frankly able to see that after a burst had been fired, the Jews were only wounded and those still living were more or less buried alive beneath the corpses of those shot later without the wounded being given so-called mercy shots. I remember that from out of the piles of corpses, the SS men were cursed by the wounded, which is... One of the most horrible things you can, th I think you can imagine of to essentially, if you miss that for any reason is if you missed and, um, 
you didn't die from the first round. Say you got hit in the arm or you got hit in your lung and you're just kind of bleeding out, right? They didn't stop. The next eight bodies were brought on top of you. They lie down on top of you naked in that pit and they were shot and you either drowned and whatever fluid came from the bodies on top of you died from asphyxiation or died from your wounds. There was no mercy given, right? And it was common because the men acting it out were not professional killers. Yeah. And that was the, the Holocaust. Also details how part they became of it. professional killers throughout the course of the book. It's it's pretty nasty, as yeah. as you just heard. Hunter, I think that does plenty to sum up the horror of the Holocaust. Gosh, what a rough quote. Uh oh. One this, more. This is our this is our last line, which just sells oh, it for us. For a battalion of less than five hundred men, that's police battalion one oh one, the ultimate body count was at least eighty three thousand Jews. Right? Good lord. Exactly right. So we're done with that with that piece of it. <gasps> right. Gosh, right. I can breathe. Yeah, no, it's 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 no joke. It, it it's horrendous, it's awful, it's it's I'm not even doing a good enough job with shit, with just that. In fact, the words probably needed to describe it properly are words that I don't want to say on the radio. Yep. I'll put it that way. Um, go ahead. No, I was just thinking of, I, I keep having to justify why we're reading stuff like that. And I think we'll talk about this in a little bit, but just as it's important to look at the gruesome, nasty parts of cultures in order to understand how they function this is exactly what we have to do with ourselves and that's again the point of the book is look at what they have done and how they came to do it in order that you may understand that about yourself which leads us perfectly into our second point right and i think i think that's a great thing ben and i think it i think that thought should keep coming to you because you know, it, it is devastating and it is sorrowful and it is all those things. And I think I think the important thing is here is when you learn the secret here, which is not that it's not that difficult, so to speak, and it's sudden and subtle how all this gets acted out, which we'll do a good job of explaining. It's very, very important to have a realistic hell, right? It's very important to know where those thoughts lead and they lead to where we just took you. Um, so how do you get there? What are the steps that can actually bring a man and break him to that point? A normal tailor. Um, Ben, you mentioned this quote, but it just deserves, it just deserves to be read in its entirety. Um, on the first, on the first time, um, the, uh, and once again, I'm going to mispronounce every German word in this, uh, the first time police battalion 101 did their first mass killing, so to speak, uh, or engaged in their first Jewish action. Um, they went to the village of Josephal, and there they knew that there were 1,800 Jews, right? And they've never done this before. They're led by a captain named Trapp, and Trapp is kind of this, uh, he's a little bumbling, he's a little, you know, old. He was a hero in World War One, right? Um, so he kind of has that persona, so to speak. So Trap uh, knows what is going on and has not told his men what it is they're going to do. And so he kind of shows up in front of them before the day of the action, so to speak. And this is how it's described in by Browning. Pale and nervous, with choking voice and tears in his eyes, Trap visibly fought to control himself as he spoke. 
The battalion, he said plaintively, had to perform a frightfully unpleasant task. This assignment was not to his liking. Indeed, it was highly regrettable. But the orders came from the highest authorities. If it would make their task any easier, the men should remember that in Germany, the bombs were falling on women and children. He then turned to the matter at hand. The Jews had instigated the American boycott that had damaged Germany. One policeman remembered Trapp saying, There were Jews in the village of Josephal who were involved with the partisans, he explained according to others. The battalion had now been ordered to round up these Jews. The male Jews of working age were to be separated and taken to a work camp. The remaining Jews, the women and children and elderly, were to be shot on the spot by the battalion. Having explained what awaited his men, Trapp then made an extraordinary offer. If any of the older men among them did not feel up to the task that lay before him, he could step out. So this battalion is essentially um, brought into their actions as perpetrators of the Holocaust with a choice not to, which is insane because we just read you everything that these men did, right? And they, at the beginning of it, got the chance to walk away if they wanted to, right? Sure, there's a lot of societal pressure that w- that's in there. But it was a you know there was this devil's bargain so to speak right at the beginning and it was you can get out you can go away you don't have to participate in this I'll protect you step out now if you don't want to right um, which is insane um, and it's insane to think that no matter what it is horrible that could be going on in your life or whenever something a horrible tragedy like this could happen again there will be so-called exit ramps, right? Mm. And it's really important to know when you're being offered one, even if it doesn't necessarily happen as on the nose as Trapp's speaking to his men. So, Ben, what do you think about that? What a nightmare, man. Um, I've actually... Yeah, yeah. In in my younger days, I actually have spent some time in, in the military, and I understand that camaraderie that that spirit of togetherness right and right there's i i've also experienced the moments where a group is doing something negative and there is such a peer pressure to be involved and be accepting and be one of because for example the the one older gentleman that did decide not to he by saying that by taking himself out of that is condemning the actions of everyone else and misery loves company. And so does sin. Sin loves company and it's passivity that that's the end of the day. Mm. It's it, in, in a word, it's passive when you sit back on what is comfortable, you can find yourself doing just about anything, which is, why we talk about this, right? That's the only way to avoid it. And and just in case we haven't outright said it, our second point is just for us to discuss how these men became instruments of the Holocaust. Right. And Hunter, I wrote down, it's a classic quote, everyone knows it, Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just an absolutely classic quote, but it's a classic for a good reason. That's what I think of it, man. It, it blows my mind that it could happen, but I can, I can, if I really try, I think I might be able to wrap my mind around it. And you can even hear 
that in, in what Trapp says in terms of wrapping their mind around it, right? He tries to justify it. He gets that something in him doesn't like it. He's upset. He tries to justify it and go, these are the people that started this war. They're bombing our children. Therefore, we can kill theirs. He's he's right. really trying. Right. But at the end of the day, he's just being he knows passive. It's wrong. Sorry? At the end of the day, he knows it's wrong. Yep. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a dark thing and I think and I I love that perspective too Ben that you brought it on being in that group and like everybody being like this is fine though cuz we're just going to do it together, you know, and don't say anything, just do what we're being told, don't make a fuss, just go along with it, get you know, um getting by so to speak. And you know, the 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 thing that is shocking I think to a lot of people is that emotion is still really powerful in an in insane circumstances and mm-hmm. extremely dire moral choices like that, yeah. pro- that it will still follow you there. Right. And if you yeah. read, the, if you read this book, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to make very, very much, di- very much difference between like a, um, what would you say? A high school class doing something they know they shouldn't, so to speak, yeah. uh, versus, you know, a, a group of, a small army of men, uh, right, making a decision to kill uh, eighteen hundred people. So, and I think um, a thousand different movies have immortalized these choices. Sure, like you have so many different instances where people don't want to go against the group, and where general conformity is is deemed as morality. You know. It's it's a very common movie mantra. Yeah. Agreed. Um to give you kind of like a more idea of what what possessed these men to do this move, um, I want to take it to this quote. Um they're talking about this commission that came out to see their battalion and evaluate them from what I remember, and it goes something like this. The commission quickly found fault with our pr- procedures. They objected that we struggled under the burden of the old and sick. To be precise, they did not initially give us the order to shoot them on the spot. Rather, they contented themselves with making it clear to us that nothing could be done with such people. One of the things I think you'll see happen throughout this book and throughout this change is that a lot of the... um, A lot of the things that lead to the outright killing, right, is small little changes. Um, one of the things I think that does this greatly is, you know, when they were when some of the Jews were being taken to these camps to be shot or graves or into the woods, whatever it was that day, one of the lies the the officers would tell both the soldiers and the Jews is to bring some small goods with them, right? making it seem as if they were being, uh, what's the word for it? Um, re relocated rather yeah, than yeah. just killed. Then upon being relocated or upon, uh, that happening, uh, they would be taken into basically strip camps, strip searched, right? Which made, which, why would you, why would you strip someone if you're telling them to bring their gifts and then leave those gifts behind, right? Yeah. Or leave whatever small possessions they have it was obvious then what was happening to both the Jews and the officers. And so then you're kind of in this awkward moment where it's like, Oh, 
I didn't know you were going to get embarrassed at the party. I feel terrible, but I'm still going to laugh anyway. It's that kind of same psychologically, but on a murderous scale, right? Yeah. It's like, well, I didn't know this was going to happen, but I don't want to make my officer look bad, and I don't want to be seen as a coward. It's all that pressure all at once, right? And the alcohol and everything else that they did to kind of manipulate these men into these moments. Um, It was was not done um, passively. It was thought through beforehand by by their betters, right? It was it was it was an educated decision on how to turn normal men into murderers, yeah. right? So, and Hunter, I think it's I think it's uh, time to move on to point three. But bef- the last thing I want to mention with point two is that you don't. No one rolls out of bed and says, "I'm going to kill an innocent Jew today." Mm. E- even the most vile person doesn't wake up one day as a normal person and then become that evil is a slow progression. Hunter, I've actually gotten the the privilege of helping a lot of guys with pornography addiction. That's something that affects an unbelievable amount of guys. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've talked to tens, a, a lot of guys about this is you're never you're never just going through your day and then you decide to do evil. It's the little things. Guys would constantly mm-hmm. talk about man, I was I was looking at this on Instagram or I I was looking at this girl on the street and next thing you know, I'm clicking yada 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 and it it was it was so interesting seeing that exact story with guy after guy after guy. It's that they never woke up like I'm going to do something bad today. They woke mm. up and, and they transgressed in the tiniest way. No one will know. It's not that big of a deal. And then that led them to a worse sin. And that sin mm. spiraled into a new sin. And then before they knew it, they're caught in the depths of something. They don't even understand how they got there. And that's part of the story of ordinary men, which is also point three. How do you not become them, Hunter? We're gonna Hunter we're gonna, as the world's palest man, uh, the, oh, no. the world's most blonde hair, blue eyed guy. <laughs> right. How how do we we're avoid gonna, becoming these guys? We're gonna punctuate your point with this one, and then we're gonna move on to that point. Okay. Um, in official jargon, the battalion made forest patrols for suspects, as the surviving Jews were to be tracked down and shot like animals. However, the men of Reserve Police Battalion One Hundred and One unofficially dubbed this phase of the final solution the Juden Hog. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it translates to Jew Hunt. Um, you know, it's always the small little things, and then finally you become a uh, happy partaker in the evil, so to speak. Yeah. And that is what we see happen with those men. Uh, the, the Jew Hunts were not something that was required, so to speak. It was something that they purposely went out to just see what they could find that day. They knew there were some Jews out there, and they were like, we don't have orders, but we're going to hunt them down anyway. Um, So, So Hunter, we've talked about how evil the Holocaust was. We've talked about how these men became instruments of that evil Holocaust. And now, man, how, how do you not become them? So, despite Belief Battalion 101 being... um. A hive of wretched scum and villainy. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
there were people within the battalion who did not succumb to these pressures, um, who fought against this stuff. Um, not perfectly all of them, but who made decisions to, 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 to get out of this nonsense. Um, and Browning talks about this because he thinks it's such a critical point. And he, he writes here, but those who killed cannot be absolved by the notion that anyone in the same situation would have done as they did. For even among them, some refused to kill and others stopped killing. Human responsibility is ultimately an individual matter. So despite the horror, despite the struggle, despite all of that, there were men that said, no, I'm not doing this, right? And that stood up against this. And what that means is it's you can't blame the, the social pressure. You can't blame... Uh, the Nazism, you can't blame Adolf Hitler. You can't blame your commander. You can't do any of that. Yep. Right. That guy right there said, no, why didn't you? Yep. Right. And it means that it's, it is ultimately, as he puts it, an individual matter. Yep. Um, so I, I think it has to, the first thing that you can say it starts with Ben is that it becomes a decision that you make to say, no matter what, no way, how, no, never am I going to participate in X, right? And I'm not going to participate in things leading to X, so to speak. Um, you know, this isn't to say that, you know, this is an interesting time as far as like the politics and the morality. And we're not speaking to to all that that goes into the war, right? Uh, we're talking mainly about the Holocaust action that happened during this time. And there were men within this police battalion despite the horrible things that they did, the 500 who killed 83 or 86,000, right? Um, that said, I will not be a part of that no matter what. So anyway. Hunter, I'm going to get a little meta with with my answer and, and zoom out even further. And I, I agree with what you said, but I think in order to get to the point where yeah. you are saying that you will not participate in certain actions, you have to identify the standard that you're going to live your life by. So if you... I think me and you both went through a period in our life where we searched really hard for the the most fundamental standard that we could mm. accept. And mm -hmm. there are so many standards floating around in the world right now that don't give human life any unique value. Hunter, I can't for the life of me figure out how any atheistic worldview can give human beings a shred more value than a dog. Because yeah. even to give human beings more value than a dog, that means you're placing value on consciousness. Well, why is consciousness mm. have value? There's no reason. We're just, if we're just biology, I can't even figure out a reason that a human being is more valuable than a rock. Mm. There's something, you have to come up with a framework that gives morality, that gives people value. And if you can't do that, you really have no basis for saying that this is wrong. Because that, that's ex if you look at all of these leaders, if you look at Mao, if you look at Stalin, if you look at Hitler, one of the first things they do is they get rid of religion. And why right. do they get rid of religion? Because that would be something higher than the government because that would be an authority. That would be a standard that they also would have to submit to and they don't want to have to submit to anything. And guess what, Hunter? You and I don't either. But you have to make that firm commitment and... And this is a deeply biblical idea, of course. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. according to the Christian worldview, in order to be saved from your sin, you have to realize your sin. 
You have to confess your sin. And in order to confess your sin, you have to know that you are a sinner. You don't have to confess mm. the depths of it because you probably don't even know it, but you have to at least identify, okay, I have sin. And in that identification of sin, you are without even realizing it half the time, declaring that human beings have a unique value given to them by God. So even if you're not a Christian, obviously Hunter and I would encourage you to look into this, but even if you're not a Christian, realize that you have to figure out why human beings have value and you have to figure out what your standard is by which you are going to judge and say that things are wrong. And you've been told not to judge. We've all been told not to judge. But at the end of the day, that's crap because I still haven't met the person who looks at Nazi Germany and says, well, what's right for them is right for them. <laughs> it just yeah, becomes Hitler laughable. Hitler was just working with his truth, you know, not a big deal. It's um, so right. easy to do when you have Janice down the road who wants to change his or her gender, but it becomes sure. really you, impossible when you look at Hitler. Sure, sure, exactly, exactly right. Um, and that and that, that kind of goes to the problems that we face in a modern society, which you talked about earlier, Ben, is just that, you know— we don't we're we're so detached from this violence that we don't think it exists so to speak yeah. um knock out hot water on your street and see what happens right it's you know it's one of those things and one thing i will say too is i we don't I recommend the, you actually do that no no we don't <laughs> um working in the construction industry is just it is it taught me two things one how little i previously and how little most people understand about how all their modern conveniences work as far as just like shelter and heat hmm. um, and light, so to speak, like the, just the major things that you take uh, for granted um, and the large, large amount of people involved in making sure those systems work. Um, there's definitely not a lot of gratitude for something like that. Um, and the untold, uh, benefit that that provides to your life and to society and keeping it stable is a little insane. Um, so, but to con con continue down, down this thought, it's, um, I also was reading recently this guy talking about, you know, about the evolutionary timeline, right, of mankind and how the end of everything is going to lead to the heat death of the universe so how can you find any meaning in that which i think is really the great question that um you were kind of discussing ben that atheism kind of throws to you or uh, a pure belief in science and only science right that it's kind of what it leaves you with in the end and then he does this very neat sleight of hand trick where he doesn't answer the question and goes but i like to think about us more as like a creature with an ancient past you know, it's more empowering to know that you're connected to all this history. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you're connected to all that history, if the end of it is the heat death of the universe. And so like, are it's, holy it's mammoths. Not... Right, exactly. It, exactly right. And so it's it's a little bit absurd. And you have to have that um, moral girding, uh, that moral center, that moral foundation. And yeah. it does matter, just like we were talking last week with Chesterton, if it's in the void or if it's real, right? It matters. It cannot just be because you're a human. Yeah. Right. It can't, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, well, A, it's selfish. So you have to deal with that minor problem. But, um, I love this part of the book because I think, I think it just gets the whole point across. Here's what happens if you don't have that moral foundation. 
at Josephau, this is the first place where the police battalion committed the first crime, right? The first Jewish action, right? A mere dozen men out of nearly 500 have responded instinctively to Major Trapp's offer to step forward and excuse himself from the impending mass murder. Twelve, right? Why was another man who from the beginning declared themselves unwilling to shoot so small? In part, it was a matter of a suddenness. There was no forewarning or time to think as the men were totally surprised by the Josephal action. Unless they were able to react to Trapp's offer on the spur of the moment, this opportunity was lost. That's how quickly wow. it can come, right? It's, we got to kill people today. That's what these men were faced with, yeah. right? And they were good citizens that didn't necessarily buy into all the crap that their dictatorship was selling them and were just trying to get by and didn't want to say anything about it and didn't want to stand up to it or, or stop it. And so eventually they found themselves in Poland with guns being told they had to murder people. And at that point, they were just like, uh, uh, sure, I guess. Right? And so, like, that that's the answer, right? It's like, you have to have it or else you'll... It's not saying that you will because it requires so many sociopolitical things to happen yeah. to create this moment. But this moment does happen. And it yeah. does... It happens more often than we would like to think it does. Right? And not necessarily in our modern age in our modern world but definitely in parts of it right and definitely when it does happen in our modern world the instances where it occurs are so devastating mm. that it, it makes every other type of affront uh, type of mass killing mass genocide that we've done in the past pale in comparison right um it's is we're, we're so efficient at killing now it, it it's mind-boggling so yeah i think that's why the the very first thing when i thought in terms of how do I avoid becoming these people? The very first thing I wrote was just the word learning was mm. because to some degree, what learning is, is it gives you a tape measure. Learning kind of shows you how to measure things and how to evaluate. Mm. And if you have the tools to evaluate the surprise things that come up, because things are going to blindside you. And if you don't have a toolkit, to evaluate the things that blindside you, you are probably just going to go along with the group. But mm. the reason it's important to read books like this is because if you have learned of the atrocities committed by past generations, when those same choices, even, and I'm sure the listener right now is like, okay, no one's going to give me a gun and tell me to kill Jewish people. Correct. But probably correct. But smaller I, I'm things sure there were there people, were, I, I am certain there were Germans who thought the same thing tw in 1920. Or Fair. in 1930. Fair. You know? But yes, I totally agree with that. But even if it doesn't, there still are going to be social pressures that tell you to do something that is against proper morality, against mm -hmm. what is objectively right. And if you haven't studied the past, as the classic expression goes, you know, we're doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. So this mm -hmm. is incredible. I think this is the biggest reason for me why it's so important is because I get to learn from the mistakes of the people who came before me, not put myself in this exalted position that because I'm mm. born in the 20, 20th century, therefore I am morally superior. No, I am as depraved and as wretched as anyone who has ever come before me, and I ought not claim moral superiority. But what I can do is thank them by learning from their mistakes, and I can grow and become better. 
It's just mm. like my granddad was a good dad, right? And hopefully, because he was a good dad, my dad is an even better dad than his mm. father. And hopefully, I'm an even better father than my father because I had a good father. And hopefully, right. that line just continues. And if we can propagate, you could even say if we reproduce goodness, hopefully, it will continue down the line. And final plug is in order to do that, you have to have a standard from which that goodness flows. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's 100% right. And I think it's, you know, absolute humility is required when you read something like this. It is definitely oh, not to be like, so correct. It's definitely not a, well, I would never. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if that's the spirit that you read this in, I, I, you don't need to read this book because it's not, there's no part you're wasting your time. Um, you know, if you would never, then why do you care? Like, then you're just reading a horrific history. Yeah. And I mean, I, 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 I don't know if you need to know any more about it than that a lot of people died. Um, and that's the benefit of this right. book is it's so personal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got a long one, but we're going to end on this. Those who did not want to go on the Jew hunts or participate in firing squads followed three lines of action. They made no secret of their antipathy to the killing. They never volunteered, and they kept their distance from the officers and NCOs when Jew hunt patrols and firing squads were being formed. Some were never chosen simply because their attitude was well known. Otto Julius Schmke, sorry, the first man to step out at Josephal, was frequently assigned to partisan actions, but never to a Jew hunt. It is not to be excluded, he said, that because of this incident, I was freed from other Jewish actions. Adolf Bittner likewise credited his early and open opposition to the battalion's Jewish actions with sparing him from further involvement. I must emphasize that from the first days I left no doubt among my comrades that I disapproved of these measures and never volunteered for them. Thus, on one of the first searches for Jews, one of my comrades clubbed a Jewish woman in my presence, and I hit him in the face. A report was made, and in that way my attitude became known to my superiors. I was never officially punished, but anyone who knows how the system works knows that outside official punishment, there is the possibility for chicanery that more than makes up for punishment. Thus, I was assigned Sunday duties and special watches, but Bittner was never assigned to a firing squad. In this police battalion, there were ordinary men and there were heroes. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself being an ordinary man. Amen. It's absolutely correct. Man, and um, what a sobering episode. Um, definitely not, definitely nothing fun. There, there wasn't anything in me that enjoyed reading this book, but it's good. It's... Honestly, I thought of it like working out. It's it's not pleasant while it's happening, but it will produce good things within me. Um, so, Manhunter, there's even a bunch of stuff we didn't get to. Uh, there's a lot in this book. I really there wanted is. to talk about the morality of the people who wouldn't go on the Jew hunts, but would participate in the firing squads, the people that would intentionally miss because they couldn't bring themselves to do it. There's a lot sure. of interesting moral questions there, and I wanted to get around to something along the lines of you aren't moral if you're a coward you know what i mean 
but mm-hmm. we don't have time to go there. We're at time, but I love how you ended that. Goodness gracious. Well, guys, thank you for joining us. This has been Leatherbound, a podcast where a couple cousins become better people by reading big books, no matter what Hunter says. Fair. We are on our sixth episode out of seven. We have one more episode in the season. I can't believe we're almost done with the season and finally get to release all these things. Our current game plan is to release in batches, so hopefully you don't have to wait a week to binge this whole thing. Uh, Please join us next time for our last final season episode of Leatherbound. If you want to find Hunter on the social medias, he's at Emotional Carl. I don't like people knowing who I am, so don't even try. I'm a mystery. We'll talk to you soon. What a bummer going from Chesterton to this, am I right? (laughs) All right. Yep, that was kind of depressing. Yeah, bye.